wrap up our stuck series, which we've been going through for the months of May and June. And so uh, one of the things that we've been doing, we've been asking the question, what areas of your life are you stuck in or do you feel stuck in? So that image of the series, that little uh, turtle that was upended with uh, its little legs up in the air, kind of trying to get some traction, but feeling like it just isn't happening for us, uh, that kind of, for me, captured the essence of this series. And without some assistance, it's just there's a whole bunch of areas of our lives that we're likely to get stuck in. So we talked about everything from being too busy and God given us the gift of Sabbath rest. We talked about what to do when your relationship with God feels stale or dry. We talked about nine different, different ways, uh, historical practices to connect with God. Uh, we talked about temptation and what to do if you feel like you're stuck in a cycle of temptation. We talked about uh, letting go of control and learning to trust God, which is a big one, I think, for a lot of us. And we talked about last weekend, you led us through a discussion. One of the things we asked people for ideas about where they were stuck. So the whole series was based off of feedback that you gave us. And the one that people said a lot of was, I just feel like I'm never going to get ahead financially. I'm just stuck. I want to be generous. It's one of our values here, generous living. But I'm just stuck in the area of my finances. And so what does God say about that? This morning, we're going to wrap up uh, in the series. And we're going to talk about uh, one of the things that came up in those feedback loops was saying, I feel stuck in my relationship with the church. And what does that look like? Um, what does it feel like? And I think a lot of it came out around expectations. I have certain expectations in, the, in my perceptions of the church, and they don't always live out in the way that I think. So, um. Yeah, I think throughout this series, we've, we've mostly looked at a topic, and we've talked about the point where we're already stuck, and we've sort of said, okay, this is, this is what's going on in our life. We lost traction. And so we've tried to provide some practical steps for how do you get the momentum going in the right direction again. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget about the reason why we get stuck. And I don't know how often we've talked about that in the topic. And I think one of the reasons why we get stuck is due to our expectations, as, as Brad was talking about. When our expectations don't match our experiences, there's usually a bit of a disconnect. And we get a little disappointed or we get frustrated, maybe a little bit angry or disengaged. And, and so I think it's just kind of one of those principles that then when, when we have experiences and expectations that they don't mesh with each other, then we're, we're in a little bit of a tricky situation. I know I'm a bit of a, of a research fanatic. I'm never a guy that goes to a store and just buys it. I love, for whatever reason, to spend countless hours online reading consumer reports and all this sort of things when it comes to a vehicle or technology or even what movie I'm going to watch, all this sort of thing. So recently, I'm, I've been looking... Melissa's not here, so she, I can say this. She's not going to listen to this message online, but I, I'm, looking, I'm, I'm looking to get just a, a very simple digital point-and-shoot camera, like nothing all that fancy. And, and so I've been reading these reports, and I find it interesting that one person can say, this is a five out of five, and you know, it's got five stars. And then someone else says, this is a two out of five. And as I've been reading these and trying to figure out, well, is it a lemon or is it a great camera, there's been a few people that have commented to the, to the ones that have given it a two out of five. And basically what they've said is, hey, for the value that you're getting in this camp, this is not an $800 professional digital SLR camera. This is a, this is a $100 Canon. 
And for what you get from it, it's incredible value. It's a five out of five. Where the two out of the five person said, no, 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 my expectation is, is way beyond this. And so because of that, the review is, well, it's terrible in low light. And it's got to show, uh, really, the shutter speed is just not nearly as fast as, as I need. And so they, they, their response then is, is, this is no good. This is a two out of five because my expectation is so high. And, and I think we can do this in a number of other areas in our life, whether it's a new diet we go on and we think, well, I've been working for four days and like, I actually gained a pound. Like, what is this? You know, how is this possible? Or we're coming up on the summertime and it's classic summer blockbuster movie and almost all of those bottom out, right? Because our expectation is so huge. It's going to be the best movie I've seen of the year. And then, you know, they all have to do with aliens and sci-fi and end up being terrible anyways, right? So, oh, <laughs> few, few people didn't like that, I guess. But it, I, I think that's a, a great metaphor, the summer blockbuster movie. Sometimes I've gone to a movie without knowing much about it. And because of it, I've actually loved it because I didn't hear everyone say, this is such a great movie. And then I get there and I think, oh, it was average, you know, but I, I feel disappointed because there's this disconnect between our expectation and our experience with it. And I think our expectations have a way of actually shaping our experiences, and it actually kind of works both ways. When, when we get used to something and we come to expect, whether it's a brand name or it's a vacation destination or it's some sort of value we have, when there's a little bit of consistent we, consistency to it, we say, well, now based on my past experience, I have this expectation. So then if it's not met later on, our experience can, can drastically change. Clearly, people's expectations of the summer movie season is different than yours. They expect uh, aliens apparently, and sci-fi. I, you, I'm not sure what you expect. I didn't even know what <laughs> movie's playing, but I guess there's some good ones coming out. Uh, I think um, to the point of expectations and our experience, influencing our experiences, I think this is uniquely or particularly true of the church. Our expectations of what the church is supposed to be and do is influenced positively and negatively by our past experiences. I can think of my experiences uh, with the church stretching back into my early elementary age uh, years when my parents started going to this little country church in northern BC. And it was the most stereotypical church experience that you could think of. It was white clapboard siding, had a little steeple. It had stained glass windows. We had wooden pews. We had that little wooden board at the front where they would put the numbers of the songs that they were going to sing as well. Uh, And so my earliest memories of this church, though, actually have nothing to do with the building itself. And it have everything to do with how, as, as uh, a six and seven and eight-year-old, what I observed going on in our home as a result of our connection with the church. Because my parents' lives began to change dramatically as they came into proximity and interrelationship with this thing that I came to know as the church. And so for my experiences, one of my earliest experiences of the church and the, the thing that set my expectations is that I actually expect that when people come into relationship with the church, they experience deep and meaningful change in their lives. And so my expectation that I carry to this day, I think, is that church is a place of transformation. And so when that doesn't happen, for whatever reason, I think I get my expectations are unmet, and I get frustrated with it. But in thinking about where that comes from, it's actually quite 
a long history in my experience mm-hmm. and has nothing to do with sort of my role in the life of the church these days. I think the other ex- experience that I had that set my expectations growing up is that this little country church was so passionately committed to reaching the neighborhood and the world with the message of the hope of Jesus. This little crew of 65 people worked so hard to support foreign missions. Uh, There was a whole group of of men who uh, gathered together and cultivated a whole section of land and farmed it and gave the whole proceeds of that to missions. Hmm. Uh, And later they did a mink farm before that wasn't really politically incorrect. Um, (laughs) Then they... They just had this vision that whatever the church was about, it had to touch the lives of people all around the world. And so for me, that cemented in my mind the expectation that the church ought to care about more than what happens within the walls of the church. And so I expect that the church will think globally and will act locally. Mm -hmm. And again, when I think about where that comes from, it comes from those experiences that set that template of expectations early on in my life. So I don't know about you. What's your, uh, some of your memories from, from growing up in the church? Yeah, I never really had a church building experience. The, the church that I grew up in until I was about 12 or 13, we met at a high school. So when I first attended Jericho Ridge, when we met at Ari Mountain, it totally felt right because my whole childhood was about setting church up and taking church down in a high school. And, and so I, I too always had this understanding of church is not about the physical area that you're in. It's about the people. And, and I think for me, the three core things of the church was it had to do with uh, the people being there. It had to do with leadership. Leadership was really key. There needed to be a point person. And that was sort of the person that was in control and doing things. And the other third part that was very essential was the Bible. You, you couldn't do anything without the Bible, whether it was uh, teaching directly from there or reference to it, but it, at least the feeling I had was you couldn't do church without the Bible. And so um, some of these things are positive. Uh, some of them had a, a bit of a negative impact on me, but I, I don't want to speak poorly of the church. A lot of it's just your own perceptions of things. I know for me, leadership was, became a challenge for me as I went through my university education, and then I went into seminary, and I started to think about this potential of leading in the church. And I think our church had such a high regard for leadership, actually I know this, that people were discouraged from leading because they, they looked at the scriptures that were represented and, and it spoke about qualifications for leadership and they just felt like, I can never measure up to this. And so there was consistently only a handful of people that led for decades. No one else would accept this invitation. And so I remember as a teenager, I thought, I can't possibly ever lead because like, I just, I'm just i a sinful person. There's no way I can measure up to that. And so that was a challenge that I really had to go through. And now I know the young people in our churches today, growing up in a church where Brad and I are leading, they're like, anyone can lead, right? Mars pretty you know, low. Pretty easy <laughs> stuff to do, right? In any. But, but and the, other, the other thing, which I guess is, is somewhat comical, you talked about music. We had a red song book. This was music. And if you're going to be a music leader, uh, really all you had to do was pick the numbers. I mean, that was it. I remember my dad ran sound, and so I'd help him. And sometimes he would say, you know who's leading today, right? And I'd say, yes. You know what that means, right, son? Yes. 
his very first word into the song, you cut the mic right away and just let everyone else go because it had nothing to do with musical ability, right? It was just about we're singing song 522. And, and collectively, I think there was a reason why we sang verses 1 and 2 and then we skipped to the last verse at the end. It was just, it was something you did, not necessarily maybe an expression of worship or of acoustic. It was very much make a joyful sound to the Lord. And, uh, and so that was, that was my music understanding. My understanding um, in music was our church had a very high regard for the organ. And then on mm. Sunday nights, we had a high regard for the accordion, which was somewhat confusing to wow. me. But, you know, that, that also was our expectation for music. But I think one of the <laughs> challenges that we have in North America is the reality that not only do we have to tend to our own personal experiences and expectations of this thing called the church, but there is also a larger cultural a perception of what the church is to be and to do. Many of these have been shaped by history and the church's own action or inaction on particular issues. And some of them have been shaped by very negative experiences and very negative perceptions. Some of you today here have probably been hurt by the church significantly over the course of your life and your journey. And so there's perceptions that begin to settle in. I know if I talk to my friends uh, who don't attend church, what their expectations of what goes on in a church are, are very amusing. But quite often, they'll, they'll generally say things like, well, the church is basically an institution, and it's most concerned with its own self-perpetuation as an institution. And so to them, they're stuck, because that's what they've seen uh, that's what they've perceived from a distance, and that's what's been poured into the definition for them of the word, the church. Now, you'd think, though, that if you ask people who attend the church, that they would have maybe a stronger sense of what the church is supposed to be and do. But if you ask many Christians about their expectation of the church, the answers aren't much different or much better. And if they give you the right answer... Sometimes their attitude and their actions towards the church actually uh, give themselves away. So I want you to watch this little video clip which, uh, and see if it doesn't maybe highlight some of the attitude that's prevalent and pervasive about the church in North America these days. Imagine a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get there? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guys. Right? Come here. Say no more. If your baby's screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Sherry and I don't give a lot to the church but we'd sure like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a buff and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. Hey, how about tickets to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. Me Church where it's all about you. Obviously, that's a parody. So 
uh, <laughs> hopefully not too many people are, are ready to, to walk out here, but uh, I mean, to get, to get kind of at the point that that film makes, the church doesn't exist for me. If it's not a me church, then who does the church exist for? Well, I think it, it's a great question because the, the answer that might seem to come to our minds most naturally is, well, if the church doesn't exist for me, it exists maybe for those who are around for them, maybe the community or other, which is a true statement, but it's not the highest truth of who the church exists for. The New Testament actually paints a very vivid and clear picture for us of who the church exists for. And it doesn't exist for me, it doesn't exist for us, it doesn't exist for them, it actually exists for him. It exists for God. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And the book of Ephesians sets a very lofty uh, vision of what the church is to be and to do, the nature and the mission of the church. There's nine instances in this short book where the church is talked about and our expectations are set. And all of the instances where the church is referenced in Ephesians, uh, the author Paul is talking about the whole church globally Uh, not just an individual congregation. We'll get, Pastor Keith will get there in a minute. But he's referring to the whole entity, all the believers together, bound together in unity and in mission. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, the writer Paul, speaking about his own calling and mission, says, though I am the very least deserving of all of God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling others, telling the Gentiles, about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, kept secret from the beginning. He's talking about the unity of the church that God has been creating. And in verse 10, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display His wisdom in its rich variety, to all of the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was always his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so the church, by its very existence, is central to God's purpose and plan in history. In the church, God is about his grand project. He's creating a unified people who operate under his authority, who know his heart for the world around them, who understand what they should do in their lives, in parenting, and in their finances, and their resources, and they, they want to partner with him in God's mission in the world. There's no plan B for God's redemptive mission in the world. It is the church. The way that our family, our greater family, the Mennonite Brethren, uh, articulates this in our confession of faith says this, the church as a body witnesses to God's reign in the world. By its life as a redeemed community, the church reveals God's saving purposes to the world. So the church, by its very existence and its unity, proclaims to a watching world, as well as to heaven itself, that the divisions that have characterized our lives and our world have been overcome. The division that existed between humanity and God, 
that has been broken down by the saving work of Jesus on the cross. Not only that, but the divisions that exist in the human family, divisions that uh, by race or by social class or by ethnicity or economics or geography or theology or anything you can think of, these have been overcome. As people are woven together in God's new family, God chooses not just to unite us vertically with himself, but also to unite us with each other in a family, in the church. And the purpose of doing that, in Ephesians 3.10, God says, God is going to use that project of uniting us together in his family to display his wisdom in its rich variety to everyone. And so in other words, God's expectation of his church is that we will be a place where his wisdom and his plan is active and on display for all to see. God's expectation of us as his church is that we will be a community where his rule and his reign are recognized and where we are living in such radical obedience and unity that not only the world will take note, but heaven itself will know that God's plan and purpose is working itself out in redemptive history. And so his grand vision and his plan and his project in history is through the church, working his redemptive purposes out through the church. But I think the big challenge with this is that this doesn't just automatically happen. Just putting people together into a church expressed locally and sticking them in the same room for 60 or 90 minutes each weekend does not make them into God's great community. Amen to that, right? (laughs) Community is about relationships. It's about making connections, and that's spiritual work. And so I think this highlights the importance of our choice in our participation in this thing called the church. Uh, One of the authors uh, that I love, Kevin Giles, in his book called What on Earth is the Church? He uses the metaphor of a theater. And in talking about Ephesians 3, he says, week by week, action by action, as we participate in the life of the community of faith, you and I are actors in a cosmic drama with a significant part to play. God is the director of the play of human history, and he's calling people to live together in vibrant community with each other and to play our part. We're not playing membership in an institution but we get to choose how we live together, how we treat the other actors that are on stage with us in the play, how we engage the people who are in the audience in our city, how we relate to other churches, other faith traditions. All of that stuff becomes meaningful to God because all of those things, when we get it right, we display his wisdom to a world that's watching and needs to see it. And when we get it wrong, when we are me church and we make the church all about us and our wants and our needs and our preferences, we miss out on this higher vision and purpose that God is working itself out in history. In the end of Ephesians 3, Paul says, Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think, glory to him in the church. Hmm and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. So that's sort of like the, the big picture, 30,000-foot view of when, uh, what God is doing in his vision for his heart, for his church. Uh, but that's just one kind of slice of the New mm-hmm. Testament. There's tons and tons of other images or pictures that come to us all through the text in the New Testament, aren't there? Yeah, and, and I use the image, re- reference the image of 
theater, and the Apostle Paul does that in his writing. He comes up with, with different images and metaphors to try to describe this thing called the church. And we're in a position where when we hear the word church, we already have a number of thoughts, expectations, past experiences, hurts, joys, all this sort of things. I think in the New Testament era, this was kind of this new understanding, like what, what is this thing that, that Christ has now given his people to use uh, to, bring, to bring people to faith? And so in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul, it's almost like he's struggling out loud when he's writing to try to explain what's going on. I think it's chapter 2 or 3, I think it's chapter 3, yeah, where he comes up with different metaphors and so he says, you know, the church is, it's kind of like a field. One person plants the seed and another person waters it and then it grows. And then he, he's only there for like two verses and then he says, no, scrap that. Let's try another one. Uh, actually, the church is more like a building and Jesus is the one who laid the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. And now the rest of us, we, we build layer upon layer. And as soon as he starts out, he says, actually, let's try again. The church is really like a temple because each of our bodies, we house the Holy Spirit. We're actually the dwelling place of God, and so we get together collectively. That's what it means to worship. And then, as Paul likes to do, he kind of finds a few other things to talk about, and then it isn't until chapter 12 that he gets back into this concept again, and he finally settles on this metaphor that he seems to like, and he says, actually, the church is like a body. That's what the church is really like, a physical body where everyone's connected together, every single unit of the body has purpose and meaning, and, and that's what he really settles on. And when you think about the implications of a body, it, it, it kind of has two big things pop out to me at least. There's, there's the understanding of connection, where each person is, is connected together, and then there's also the idea of purpose. Physical bodies have purpose just as the body of Christ has purpose. And so we look at that, that, that first point of being connected to each other, uh, when you look at physical bodies and Perhaps the metaphor isn't quite as helpful now with science and the fact that if you have a body that is actually working, um, you can, yeah, there's actually ways that, that the rest of your body can no longer suffer because you can, you can get help and all that, those sorts of things. Uh, but our, our, the body of Christ is not a vacuum cleaner where you just take one attachment off and you grab something else on and you say, you know what, now we're going to go this direction and just rely on this person's gifts and the rest of you can sit alone. Or it's not a drill bit set where you say, this is the job I need to take, so you know, I'll take the Phillips screwdriver head and the rest of you just sit on the sidelines and you're kind of not included here. It's a body. And so that's why we, we hear in the scriptures, they talk about the people together when when there's hurt, when there's grief, we actually grieve together. We feel each other's pain because when you stub your toe, the rest of your body has to compensate for that and you're actually, you operate differently when you're hurting. Same thing when there's great joy and celebration, you do that collectively. It's a celebration, it's a feast because of that connective tissue. And then that second point of understanding that there's purpose and, and Paul uses these words with body parts in the middle of chapter 12. He says, because we're all united and connected together, one body part can't say to the other, I don't need you, or, or there's really, there's no point to you being part of our project together. So the foot can't sit on the sidelines and say, you know what, I'm not a hand, so I'm not needed, and I'm just going to sit this one out. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, you have no purpose. Instead, this is, this is all done collectively. And, and this, is, this is Paul's metaphor, and, uh, and I think it's specifically geared for the church that he's speaking to, uh, but a number of authors over the years, I'm gone, we'll use this one, 
Another of an, a, a number of authors over the years. This one's good. Okay, it just sounds different in my ears. Um, it's interesting that other authors now, they are using new metaphors because some of the, I mean, we look at planting a field and not many of us do that anymore. The, the actual challenge of constructing a building is so different now. I mean, back in the day, you just built your own building, right? Most people could do that. Now there's a few other codes and regulations and experts that do that. And, and one of the metaphors that I really like is actually used by Philip Yancey. And he says that, then in a sense, the church is kind of like God's locker room. The church is like an athletic team. And, and I really resonate with that because I like following teams and, and I've been on teams and it's just interesting to look at that concept before. Uh, but when you think about a team, whether it's a, a hockey team or a basketball team, those are the two sports right now that are in the playoffs, so we'll use those. I mean, if you look at a basketball team, everyone has a role. I mean, there's the rebounder who rebounds, but he doesn't shoot. There's the shooter that doesn't pass. Uh, There's the last person off the bench who all he does is cheer. But there's that understanding of everyone has a purpose. And unless you get some of these pre-Badonna athletes that are a dysfunction to their team, and they're actually hurtful for their team, you don't just not show up. You don't just all of a sudden say, I'm not going to grab the flight for our next game. You're actually all part of it together. And there's a number of different implications about team that, that I really like. There's different functions of the team. If the team just played games, maybe some of you have been part of teams that do that, you find out how terrible that is. But when you practice together, when your coach calls a timeout and you huddle up and you talk with each other, uh, when you develop yourself personally and, and together as a team, it changes so much how you interact with each other and the success of your mission together. You win together, you lose together. Some of the most elite athletes out there are the ones that when the winter comes around or the summer, depending on on the sport, they're the ones that keep practicing, right? They're the ones that are in the gym six to eight hours a day, whatever it is. And then they do that personally and it has an impact on their team. And I think there's crossover to the church, kind of that understanding of each one of us as, as we've decided to make a decision to follow Jesus, there's this individual component of understanding that you need to grow in your faith. And you do that so that the body of Christ grows as well. We're actually dependent on each other. And as we grow individually, we grow collectively and our gifts expand and we actually use that together. And so going back to Brad's experience and now his expectation of the church from his growing up years, there's that component of transformation. You're actually not the same church that you were six months ago. You're not the same individual that you were six months ago. And, and so it, it's really a journey of transformation. I've been on a number of losing teams. I think I might be the common ingredient here. But I, I've been on some teams where the first practice, the first game, it's embarrassing. And you think, oh man, we're in for a long season. And then depending on how the schedule works out, maybe you play that same team. You played the first game halfway or three-quarters of the way during the season. And a number of times you beat them. And you just think, there's growth here. We've actually, we've gotten better collectively and individually, and we're actually getting closer towards our mission. I think um, both in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians, right before and right after the discussion of the church, it talks about that notion of giftedness. And that something significant that happens is that individuals bring their gifts into the life of a community and they're sharpened together and focused together. And that the mission that God has called us to here at Jericho Ridge 
is reliant and dependent upon everyone contributing their gifts significantly into what it is that God has called us to do. It's not reliant just on a few superstars um, that are going to take things and move things significantly up the field. So I think there's a couple of dangers that um, can come up, and, and the implications uh, of these metaphors, there's also sort of shadow sides to each of these metaphors. And I think there's two dangerous ways of thinking that we need to guard against. They're like viruses that get, if they get into the team system in some way, that they are unhealthy and people come down with them and they sicken our hearts and they poison our experiences as a whole. I think the first one, the first virus that can infect us is that virus of consumerism. Because if I come in small or big ways to believe that the church is a purveyor of religious goods and services, I'm in trouble. Because if I catch this virus, and this virus circulates in the air in North America about everything we do, so I think we have to guard against it more vigilantly than our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world. But I easily get stuck in if I catch this virus. Because then what happens is if the church doesn't provide the quality or the specific type of service that I'm looking for, I check out and I find another one. Because it just isn't meeting my needs in any way. And it doesn't speak to me anymore. And I'm not getting from it what I need to get out of it. So. Yeah, and there is uh, a question that sometimes gets asked. What, what did you get out of church today? Or how was church for you? And um, yeah, I think that kind of speaks a little bit to that understanding of, well, this is, this is about me. Uh, we, we've heard common phrases, too, of people who are church shopping, which obviously is using consumeristic language. And, you know, sometimes this is not indicative of people's hearts when they're saying this. It's just kind of the understanding of this is common rhetoric now. This is language that is very much used by people to express the phase that they're at in life or their relationship to the church. So, I mean, how does, how does this kind of factor into to what we're talking about? Well, I think we have to watch our language, actually, very carefully, because... Uh, when you say things like, how was church today, then immediately the, the response to that is, well, the music was off a bit, my kids didn't really like the craft that they did, you know, my teenagers didn't like sitting in the main gathering and listening to boring Pastor Brad and Pastor Keith speak. Like, and so all of these responses kind of give us a way that we think of ourselves as the primary recipients of what's transpiring, as opposed to thinking ourselves as members of, of a team, we're creative co-participants in God's grand story of redemption that he's working out in human history. And so if we reduce that to what we get out of the experience, as opposed to what we come to give and contribute into the experience, we're going to get it wrong every time. And so I think there's some danger there. Uh, I think even the language of going to church is problematic, um, because the church isn't something that you go to, the church is something that you are or that we are. And that's why we don't call, even on Sunday mornings, we don't actually call this a service because service is something that you do. Uh, this is a gathering. Uh, and so uh, this is uh, not just where you come for a little dose of um, music and a nice talk, like if that's the grand vision of the church, anybody with a modicum of skill can put on five songs and do a little talk every seven days. Uh, but 
in Sunday mornings, we are about the grander vision of God's transforming work in the world and in our lives, and that needs to be kept at the forefront, and we grow forgetful of that. That's why Hebrews talks about in chapter 12, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, because you're going to forget about what God's mission and heart is for his church. And so I think that's why our vision statement reminds us that we aspire to be a loving and listening people, extending God's hope and reconciliation to our community in all of life, all of the time. So the church is something that we are, not just exclusively even something that we do yeah, or something that happens. So when what happens on Sunday mornings or stuff that we do, the amazing race, summer kickoff, women's dessert night, you know, what's happening next month with summer camp or Tanzania or uh, men's fireside feast or scripture intake, like when we put the emphasis on what we do, we miss it also because those, those activities are about helping us fulfill our mission, not just about the activities themselves and what we're going to get out of it. Even. So in some ways, it's really not what Christians do in the church, uh, individually or corporately, that set us apart as the church. It's what God has done for Christ, through Christ, in Christ, for us. And so the church is then something that we respond to and that we are, uh, not just something that we do. One of the things I've been reflecting on, because I got, I got stuck, to use our series title in a different way, I got stuck on this metaphor of team, and, uh, and I started to think about just, and no metaphor is perfect, so you know, maybe I'm out of bounds here, to use a, another metaphor, but um, it's interesting that, that when you look at, at some teams, if you look at a, the professional level, there aren't many cases, now with free agency there are, but where an individual chooses what team they want to play for. There's actually, it's, it's the team that selects that player. And so you've got your general manager and your coach and your management, and they spend all of this time thinking, well, what individual is going to help us collectively reach our goal? Which in sports is always winning. Actually, not always. Revenue is number one. Then it's winning. <laughs> but uh, but it's, it's kind of that. And as I was thinking about that and looking back at the New Testament time, when those people were coming to faith, I'm speculating here, but I don't know how much they thought about, well, what church should I go to? Who should I gather with? It was this understanding of there's, there's people around me that are like-minded. They've understood this grace of Jesus, and so we get together together, and we do this. There's persecution all over. They aren't traveling great distances. And so you look at your commonality, and you do that together. And so in a sense, I, I wonder if it's not so much that we choose our church, but our church chooses us. And this idea of saying, if you've, if you've decided that you're going to follow Jesus, and, and then you've, you've become baptized into the body of Christ, that, that's an incorporation into the church. And, and I have a, a good amount of respect. I've talked to a few people who have expressed this part of their story to me, where they, they've known in advance that they're going to move to a very different location across the country or across a different province. And so ahead of time, they've actually decided what church they were going to attend. They looked at websites, they talked with people, and they looked at, at theological beliefs and leadership, and they've got a sense of, you know what, this is, this is a solid church from what I can tell on a leadership and a mission standpoint. And so I'm not going to go there and try it out. I'm actually going to go and say, this is my church. And when there's maybe some personality things and some other things that maybe I don't like as much, it's not necessarily me, 
I've already come to this conviction of, no, this is where God wants me. And so I'm going go to go through that experience. And it's, it's just a very different concept to think of relating to a church in that way of saying, I've been chosen by this church. This is where God wants me to be. And so I'm going to stick it out uh, when I see these, these big rock things that are important in the establishment of the church. That's going to lead me forward to continuing to engage in this. I think that also speaks against, so consumerism is one danger, and then also that helps to counter individualism, which is, I think, that other virus that we can catch. Um, Whatever else it is or isn't, the church is a community. And so uh, Kevin Giles reminds us again, in contrast to our modern Western way of thinking, the Bible is predicated on the belief that human beings at every level are bound together in communities of various sorts. And to suggest that the Bible is ultimately, and God's ultimate project is about uh, somehow just salvation, or that the church is a local individual, a local assembly of individuals who are bound together only by personal associations, or that each individual congregation is in no way linked to other congregations, reduces and introduces ideas that are totally foreign to biblical thinking. And those who suggest such things, I think, are reflecting their own cultural values, not the values of the biblical writer and the biblical text. That's, there's sociological elements of the church, there's theological elements of the church, um, but I think that's where this whole element of just being realistic about it, too, comes into play. We're communities of people, so we're imperfect. We're going to get it wrong. We're going to miss the mark. Um, we're going to fail in all kinds of different things, but that is not ultimately a reflection of God's failure and his project of creating the church. It might be something that we brought to the table. I think as we transition into our um, response in song, I'm going to ask Dustin and the team to come up and those who are serving communion as well at the tables to come. And as we move into communion, we're going to see communion and our worship together as a declaration of unity. And I want you to think about how many people all over the world today are assembled in some form in some place today. And many of the 2.2 billion people on our planet who follow Jesus, or claim to model Jesus, uh, with a, and are connected with a faith community, will celebrate communion somewhere today. And so when we do this, we're following not only Jesus' example of modeling where we gather together and where the fruit of the vine represents Jesus' blood, which was shed for us on the cross, And also the bread, which represents his body, which was broken so that you and I can be whole. But we also are joining together, making a statement and a declaration of unity as a church, but also with the global church. And so today we're going to do communion just a little bit differently. The team's going to lead us in a song. And during that first song, I'm going to ask you to go to the tables at the side and take uh, the, the cup and take the bread or the rice cracker and come back to your seat with that and hold it, and then we'll participate all together as we go into the second song and as an expression of unity all at once. And so I'm going to pray and invite you to stand with me as we prepare to move to the tables and prepare our hearts for communion. God, we thank you for your grace as it has been demonstrated so powerfully to us in Jesus and his work on the cross. We thank you for drawing us into your family when we choose to place our trust and our confidence in you. And so we thank you for those of us who are living in right relationship with you. We thank you that you've given us your spirit to remind us of your church and to call us into unity with each other. 
and with your family. And so, God, we make our own personal commitment that if there's anything going on in our lives and our hearts where we have broken unity with another individual, we want to make it right, God, today in this place. If we are, are out of connection with you, we want to take time to process that and to repent and to say and ask you to forgive us yet again, Jesus, before we participate in this declaration of unity. And so, God, we thank you for your grace and your work on the cross that draws us all together into your family. And we thank you that as we participate and celebrate in this place, we declare and proclaim the unity of your church to not only the world and to each other, but also to the very heavens themselves. And so we take that responsibility seriously today, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. The team's going to lead us. And so I just invite you to go over to those stations, bring it back and hold it until we participate all together.